Welcome to The Balance. My name is Dr. Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is sponsored by StudySync. My guest today is Dr. Tim Shanahan. He is a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Illinois in Chicago, a former director of reading for the Chicago Public Schools, a member of the National Reading Panel, advisory board of the National Institute for Literary under Presidents George Bush and Barack Obama, former president of the International Literary Association, and a former first grade teacher. All right. So I am thrilled to get an opportunity to chat with you. I know our paths have crossed at lots of different events before. I've had the good fortune of getting to hear you speak. So I always start the podcast by inviting my guests to share their kind of journey in education. So where you started and how you arrived at the work you're doing now focused on literacy. Okay. Well, thanks. It's good to get together with you. Um, Most people who go into literacy tend to do it a little bit later than I did. Usually you become a a classroom teacher for a while and you figure out that literacy is really important or you're interested in that. And and so typically somebody maybe in their mid-20s starts to do that. I actually, my original plan wasn't to be a teacher, but to be, uh, I was going to go into politics and government and stuff like that. And uh, had worked on those kinds of things as a teenager, you know, worked on presidential campaigns and stuff. And uh, one of the things I did in college just to get involved was there was a, an opportunity to tutor in the inner city. And, you know, it was tutoring reading, which I knew nothing about because I wasn't <laughs> an education major. So I, uh, it was kind of cool because you got on a bus with a bunch of young women because uh, I was one of the only guys doing this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I was nervous about it. So I went and read a couple of books about the teaching of reading. Uh, and really got into it and ended up taking some classes and and uh, a, a pr- particular professor befriended me. And so when I was 18 and 19 years old, he would take me out when he was consulting in schools and working with teachers and principals and so on. So I've, wow. I've been doing this since I was about 18 years old. Oh my goodness. Uh, I became a teacher because of it rather than being a teacher, you know, hooked me into it. And, and so got a master's degree then and a doctoral degree, thinking I was going to go back to my school district where I'd been a first grade teacher. And I thought I'll get to be, you know, I'll, I'll be a curriculum director or something. Mm-hmm. But I got hooked on the research end of it and, and mm-hmm. decided, boy, I really, I don't just like reading this stuff. I like doing it, asking these questions. And so ended up going to the university rather than back to teaching and, and so on. So yeah, that was, that was my journey. And how long were you at the first grade level teaching? Uh, I was in the primary grades for uh, three or four years, uh, okay. you know, different ways. And, and uh, you know, third grade, first grade, you know, that kind of stuff, uh, intervention, trying all kinds of things, trying to trying to learn my craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So it was interesting in preparation for this conversation, I was on your website and I'll include the link to that in the show notes for anybody who wants to check it out. But I see that you respond to a lot of teachers' questions on the website. So those frequently asked questions you get. And I really love that format as a strategy for kind of surfacing the most commonly asked questions and providing really thoughtful answers. So I'm just curious, what are some of the biggest misconceptions you encounter when you work with teachers around literacy development? Well, it changes over time. I've been doing this for a very long time now, but these days, a lot of it has to do with science of reading. And, you know, Mm -hmm. people, this shorthand that happened to be used by the media that, uh, you know, probably means one thing to the researchers and scientists in the field and means something else to publishing companies and teachers and principals and so on. Uh, And so these days, you know, a lot of people are getting it in their head that, the only thing they really need to teach in the primary grades is phonics. And if they do a good job with phonics, they don't need to worry about anything else, which doesn't really match up with what we know. Uh, if we look at something like $100 million worth of research that the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development did, uh, and uh, research that certainly highlighted and underlined and emphasized the importance of phonemic awareness and phonics decoding and kids' early learning of reading, but they also found that while they could 
address those needs and get kids up to, say, average levels of performance on decoding, which should have made kids pretty good readers, Mm -hmm. uh, more than half the time fails to do that because there Mm -hmm. are other language and comprehension issues that need to be paid attention to. And so that notion of we've got a silver bullet, Mm -hmm. you know, let's shoot that one and it'll fix everything is, is, is probably one of the biggest misconceptions right now. And the sad thing is, I mean, because you get into this pendulum pushing, phonics is really important. And a lot of schools haven't been doing a very good job of it. So the the push for more phonics and better phonics is really important. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to push that pendulum without overdoing it. And I think that's kind of what's going on right now. And it it, it happens again and again in our field. So do you find that when teachers are, because you present research in your explanations, they're very clear. You even sometimes include some specific strategies. I know when you work with teachers, you really provide specific strategies. Do you find that they're willing to shift practice or do you encounter a lot of resistance when it comes to kind of rethinking or shifting their approach to teaching, reading and, and literacy development? You find both. Uh, you, you get, and, and they're both, in some ways, they can both be dangerous. You can get pushbacks from people who say, I've been doing it the way I have for 25 years, and you've only taught three or four years. You don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what, they're, what they're falling into is, is what happens to all of us. You know your own experience. You know that if you were teaching in a particular way, you see that the kids are learning. And, you know, and I'm certainly not denying that those teachers, that they really are seeing what they think they're seeing. They're not getting complaints from parents. In fact, maybe parents even go out of their way to ask if their kids can be in that classroom. Mm-hmm. And so they look and say, look, this has worked for me. What they're missing in that is, is what, here's what research gives you that you can't get from personal experience. Research can look and say, yeah, but if you do it that way, kids... They're going to learn, but they're only going to learn this much, not that much. Mm -hmm. They're not going to get as much as they could. And we can see that if we compare lots of classrooms that are doing this in different ways. And therefore, yeah, you're seeing learning, but not as much as you could. And if we're really doing this for the kids, (laughs) then we've got got to make those changes. So so that kind of pushback can be dangerous or or get in the way of, of real progress. On the other hand, there are teachers who... They're willing to change at the drop of a hat. (laughs) They kind of blow with the wind. If if this is what the school district wants right now, I don't have to use any judgment. It doesn't sound good to me, but I'll do it. Right. Uh, (laughs) Give me the curriculum. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'd like a little more pushback from those teachers. Mm -hmm. Not because I want to be argumentative, but because I really want uh, what I'm trying to share to be understood. And it's so easy to be misunderstood. And so somebody will, oh, I, you know, I, I believe you must be right. I'll just do it. I'm not going to have to think too hard about it. And that's really not the best way to approach it. So I get both of those (laughs) and I I try to fight both of those. Uh, The way I fight the, the first one is, I, I use as many real examples as I can from classrooms that I've worked in or that I'm getting information from teachers on, that kind of thing. And with the latter, you try to uh, give as, as thorough an explanation of why something is better. And, and you try to anticipate how is somebody going to maybe embrace this, but misunderstand it and not actually accomplish what I want them to. So I end up trying to be very specific in time. Mm-hmm. I can give an example. This is an old example, but there's always an argument in the phonics and the word recognition stuff. Is it okay to teach any sight words? Mm-hmm. Can you have kids memorize any words? And there are people, oh, no, no, you can't do that. That is harmful. Well, the research doesn't agree with that. The research says that isn't harmful. And, and it, teaching a, a small number of, of sight words is really useful. So I remember once going into a school district and I, and I get the question about this and I say, oh, yeah, you need to teach this. And in fact, in my schools, uh, I push, uh, I promote the idea of making sure kids know those hundred most frequent words by the time they end first grade. They're going to know a lot of other words from their decoding, but make doggone sure they know those first hundred. <laughs> and by the end of second grade, the first 300, which includes that first hundred. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see some teachers going, yeah, see, I've always believed this is great. And then I say, and so about five minutes a day should accomplish that. 
And they go, five minutes. <laughs> 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 this is what I really want to do. This is what I really like. I was really going to put down my friends who are pushing all the phonics. If, I, if you can be specific about how much time to put into some of these things, mm-hmm. it clears up a lot of misconceptions. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the people who are going, oh, you should only teach phonics are going, well, five minutes a day, that's not going to do any harm. And the, the people who love vocabulary going, well, I guess I can't do the 45-minute lesson that I wanted to do. <laughs> you know? Right. Which and, the kids you know, probably aren't loving a 45-minute vocabulary lesson as much oh, as that teacher. <laughs> oh, it can be so deadly. It oh, my be, gosh. And you see it with vocabulary, not just say vocabulary, but word meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, not too long ago, I was visiting uh, some middle school classes. And it was supposed to be a reading comprehension lesson. But it, the whole thing was, uh, we're going to get you ready for the vocabulary in this text. And so... Uh, here's this word, and here's that word, and this one means this. What do you think this one means, Catlin? And, oh, wow. And it went 45 minutes of a 50-minute lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just wanted to shoot myself. And you should have seen the looks on these children's faces. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> it was just they so did not want to be there. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, you tell a story like that, and you go, uh-oh, now I'm worried because people are going to say, he's saying we shouldn't be teaching vocabulary. And I'm not saying that we should be teaching vocabulary. So again, I try to be as specific as I can to try to take away those misunderstandings. I'd I'd rather have somebody not happy with what I'm saying and push back rather than thinking they understand it when they're hearing something different than what I meant. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it's interesting when I hear you speak, even your experience in literacy so much mirrors what I encounter all the time working with teachers around blended learning, which is even when I present the benefits, some of the research, the strategies and techniques, there are the teachers who are just like, no, I'm, I don't want to do that. I, what I do works for me. And I'm always silently wondering, like, does it work for kids? Like this generation of learners. And then you've got the teachers who are often running, they'll try anything. They're the early adopters. So just a really interesting, like listening to your experience and being able to identify so much with that reaction. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, these things happen again and again in classrooms. Um, I, I think one of our problems is it, when it comes to reading instruction is so many things work. If mm. work means that kids learn to read. But our problem in American education isn't that kids aren't learning to read. They're not learning to read well enough. Mm-hmm. You know, they, a lot of you know, people in the media, when they hear the statistics, they go, oh, you know, there are like 40 million children who can't read. They, you know, it must be just terrible not to be. Our kids can read. Most of them can read. You know, it's like 90 some percent of our kids can actually read text, but they can't read complicated text. They can't do, uh, you know, uh, ambitious, uh, you know, complex things. And so those teachers are, are looking and they're seeing something good happening, but they're not, they don't have a high enough standard for what they should be seeing. And, and so they're satisfied. They got some learning. That's good enough. And we're looking and saying, gee, you know, kids are fa- in the U.S. are falling behind kids around the world. Uh, those teachers seem to be willing to take their kids to a higher level. Why aren't ours? I, I just think it's, it's everything works to some extent, and since it works, they're they're satisfied with it. We've got to got to break them out of that satisfaction. Yeah. Well, and I obviously my uh, teaching experience is sixteen years in high school English classes in ninth and tenth grade primarily, and. It wasn't that necessarily kids couldn't read. I definitely had kids at wildly different reading levels, which I want to chat about in a second. It was more just sad how many of them hated reading. They just had no interest in reading and trying to kind of like light that fire again and get them excited about text was a real challenge. Yeah. I think for a lot of kids, I mean, there are... Motivation is complicated because different things motivate different people, and and even things that motivate a person at one time may not you know, motivate them under different circumstances, and so on. But one of the things that I see is is it's with reading different than almost any other thing we teach in schools. It's almost like we hide from kids whether they're making progress or how much progress they're making. It, it's almost like it's a secret. Uh-huh. And so, you know what we see teachers doing is and. 
they're not doing this because they invented it. They're doing it because they've been told to do it. But what they, we see them doing is trying to teach kids with fairly easy text. I want to teach a youngster to read with text they can already read. Mm-hmm. Which is, it, think about that. You, how do you teach somebody how to do something that they can already do? You, they don't need teaching of that. They need teaching of, gee, I don't know how to figure out the theme of a seventh grade level novel. I know how to figure out, uh, you know, I can do that with a fifth grade novel. Mm-hmm. And teach them, Fine. Well, then I'll teach you that with the fifth grade novel. Um, right. Oh, that makes so much I, sense, right? They already so, know how to do that. Why are we focusing on that? And so we do that again and again to these kids. And it, it's like, oh, we take a break for an hour a day. And I do stuff that it doesn't add to my knowledge, isn't making me any better at anything that I can see. Uh, and we're seeing greater motivation for kids when they're actually put in a more challenging situation with clearer goals. And they can see that they can't do it initially. And then they can. And when they <laughs> that, that transition is important. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's one of the reasons why these days... I. The, some of the best learning situations I get to observe in are either physical stuff like teaching kids football or bat, you know, that kind of stuff, uh, mm-hmm. athletics or music, mm-hmm. because the teachers have very specific goals that they, you know, you have to be able to do this with your two hands and a piano lesson. You have to, and they don't, well, I know that's hard, but it's okay. You're going to have to do that. I'll show you how to get there. In mm-hmm. reading, we tend to, how do we make sure that it's easy for the kids so that they'll like it? Nobody is finding kid, people are motivated. Oh, this is going to be really easy and I won't have to do anything. It's, that's right. just not what, what turns people on. No. And I always think about just for myself, like I'm in a book club, I read a book and I get to choose every fourth one. And I probably really like every third book or so that we read because reading is also just this really individual experience. I feel like people have such different preferences. And when I work with teachers who have students who are just not enthusiastic readers, a lot of the time when we're choosing texts, I'm really like, curious how might choosing complex texts at a particular level, but maybe on different subjects, even if they're informational texts, where students get to select one that is interesting or on a topic that they're curious about, like what impact that might have if students had a bit more agency when it came to selecting texts that obviously teachers have identified as being, like you're saying, a little bit of a stretch. It's going to really build their skills, but they're still getting some agency in that process. And so often, you know, reading is very much this lockstep. Everybody's kind of plowing through the same novel or reading the same article um, at the same pace and reading just whether it's a preference or whether it's the pace at which you read, it's so variable. Absolutely. And agency matters. And the way that, yeah, and there's a lot of research showing that, but we simplify that in reading. Oh, so if they can choose the book, then they'll like it. Mm-hmm. Well, that can work. That That's one kind of agency. I would argue that you were also showing agency and I'm going to do this reading in a book club. The reason, you know, I might not be thrilled with this particular book, but I'm doing this to connect with the other people that I'm reading with. Mm-hmm. And so I don't mind reading this book that isn't so wonderful. Uh, I think agency also comes in, and especially you said you taught English literature, mm-hmm. English literature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, one of the things that I think turns kids off in literature is we often don't teach it as literature. We teach it as reading comprehension. That there's you know one set of facts for this piece of literature. If you read this story, there's one interpretation that's going to be correct. And I know it because I've read this book four times and I analyzed <laughs> it, you know, with the professor in college. And, and uh, uh, I know what it means. Getting kids to come up with, for example, multiple themes of a story or a novel. Uh, not, well, Jimmy has one view of it, Mary has another, but can Jimmy and or Mary come up with two or three different views of this particular novel and pick the one that they think that the maybe the author intended, maybe mm-hmm. pick the one that they think uh, resonates in their life the most, which mm-hmm. might be different, and, and so on. I think we, well, I, at times teach literature as if it were a, a social studies or a science book rather than literature. And instead of giving kids agency, uh, it becomes a kind of guess my interpretation uh, from the teacher's point of view. And I think that can can take away that sense of agency as well. That's a really great point. So 
given that we know there's just such a diversity of skills and abilities and language proficiencies in a classroom, um, because kids are in such wildly different places sometimes in terms of their literacy development, when you're working with teachers, do you have suggestions about how they could best approach literacy development to make sure that they truly are kind of meeting students where they're at and making sure that all students, regardless of where they're starting, are making progress? Sure. Uh, it- and one of the things that I've done, I, I was uh, in charge of uh, all the reading programs in the Chicago public schools, which made me responsible for 437,000 kids, <laughs> 26,000 teachers, um, wow. and, and we raised reading achievement. But one of the things, the, the first thing I start with is, uh, you know, we need to make sure kids are getting enough teaching and enough experience with these things. So, you know, we make sure that's all going to be built into the uh, schedule. A second thing that we do is there are key things that have to be taught. Uh, you know, uh, the stuff we were just talking about, you have to focus on reading comprehension. You have to focus on uh, getting the facts in a social studies book of, of coming up with an interpretation in the literary book and so on and so forth. You have to be able to do those kinds of things and learn those strategies and so on. But you also have to learn certain things about language and, and particularly vocabulary and morphology and that. And, and you need to learn to write and you learn, need to learn something that can be a real tough one for secondary students at times because teachers are afraid to have kids deal with it. But fluency, you have to be able to actually read those sentences like their language. Uh, you, you know, you have to make the text sound like text. You don't have to be able to read like a, a great actor, but you have to be able to read the sentences in a way that allows you to understand what the text means and to connect the sentences. And so learning those kinds of linguistic skills is, is really important. So we, we literally, you know, divide up the time of instruction into you, you've got to be put in, investing in each of these buckets. And so we put roughly equal times into all of those. So that's the sort of lays the groundwork. And then we look at what does the research say are effective ways of doing those things. There's not a single way of accomplishing most of those. And therefore, what are the things that work? Going to make sure every teacher knows at least some of those ways. If they have some others that they've learned over the years, that's cool. But the goal is to, to give kids support in all of those areas. And, and the, the professional development that we do focuses initially on what do you need to teach, then on how do you teach it, and then how do you know whether kids are making the progress with it? And you know, what, what's your goal with it? Where are you trying to be with that so that they, they have a sense? And that, that kind of gives you a framework for how we approach it. And then the specifics, of course, go into all those little boxes and connections and so on. Um, there are certainly things that people benefit from knowing that you just can't address everything. So a great deal, if you're in charge of something like that, you have to have a great deal of trust in the people who you're working with. And so I had 26,000 teachers and I, I can tell you they're not, they weren't all wonderful teachers and they weren't all committed teachers. Mm-hmm. And yet an incredibly high percentage of them were. And uh, frankly, those, those teachers who are, and as I say, an incredibly high percentage are, uh, even in the most challenging circumstances, they tend to pull along those colleagues who are, for whatever reason, are lost now, or maybe they've always been lost. I, sometimes people are a good teacher and they back away from it because things aren't going well, or mm-hmm. uh, you know they they they're feeling beaten up by test scores and and all of that, and so they they start to pull back. It's just the opposite of what we were saying about agency. I'm going to give up agency. I don't want to take any responsibility for this. I'm doing my job. I'm here. I don't, you know, I don't want to invest in this because I don't think it can work. When you Mm -hmm. see your colleagues making it work, it makes it a lot harder to to give up like that. And so you you end up pulling a lot of those people back or they pull themselves back maybe is more accurate. Yeah, it's a tough, it's such a tough profession. And you think about things like test scores and just like the, especially the challenges of the last few years. And then you have personal issues that happen for teachers. So I definitely see that as well. Just the ones who, for whatever reason, are not leaning into that role as the lead learner and being really eager to continue to refine the practice. But they're really the the few and far between. I, I'm constantly amazed by how, 
energetic and interested teachers are to kind of do their best work for students. Um, but yeah, it can be can be challenging. And teachers especially get blasted. And of course, mm-hmm. that was where I was in charge. And I can tell you, those teachers are amazing. <laughs> yeah. so, cool. so good. Yeah. And it's interesting because so I coach in elementary a lot when I'm working with teachers and they're so much more um, comfortable designing with rotations or learning centers where they work with small groups. And when I get to the secondary level, I see very little of that. But when we talk about these different buckets, these different focus areas and realizing that kids are going to be in really different places and to truly like motivate them and push them forward in terms of literacy development, we need to be challenging them at an appropriate level, like when they're within their kind of zone of proximal development. But how did, you know, do you see secondary teachers thinking outside that traditional whole group teacher led model when they're trying to really meet kids where they're at with literacy development? Uh- they that's certainly not usually where most of them are starting and it's certainly not a goal that they have and so the trick there it's you know one thing that's different about secondary teachers and elementary teachers is is i i do think in terms of what the kids are supposed to walk out of with that the secondary teachers are more goal directed mm-hmm. they're much more specific about what they think they're teaching and what they want to have the kids learn and so with when someone comes in and says, let's do that in small groups, or let's let the kids do more of the talking and you, you know, sit back a little bit and, and observe and respond, uh, they get frightened that, yeah, but then the kids aren't going to learn this particular thing. And if, if you can demonstrate for them that they will, or demonstrate that maybe it'll add something, some dimension to the learning that they're missing, uh, they tend to be really easy to pull along. Mm-hmm. If you can't do that, if you can't get them connected to their goal, then it's that's nice. That's how you like to do it. But I this makes sure that I'm getting my goals accomplished. And yeah. so you've got to respect that. Elementary teachers are looking at the kids in a less specific way. They're responsible for so much of the curriculum that uh, I think it would be hard for them to be as specific, say, as a high school English teacher would be as to what they want the kids to learn. Um, well, yeah, but I have a science lesson too, and I have a social studies lesson, and mm-hmm. you know, for the next three weeks, uh, Mrs. So and So's art, so I'm teaching art as well. Yeah, <laughs> kind of stuff. So, yeah, but it is different. It, it really is. Yeah. So I know it's it's tempting to kind of mentally box literacy into this idea of like the English classes or even an ELA block in an elementary school teacher's day, like literacy development's kind of their concern. And I'm sure there are folks who know your focus literacy and assume this episode might not be relevant to them because they teach science or history or math. But one of the posts I found fascinating on your website was really about the connection between literacy and math skills. And I've definitely done some kind of work in literacy just because I was an English teacher. And I think when I was going through credential school in our English cohort, um, there was a lot of talk about writing across the curriculum and reading across the curriculum. And obviously Common Core has literacy standards that they goes beyond English, right? History and science. So I'm just curious if you could kind of speak to or tell listeners a bit about that interplay between literacy and math skills or literacy and other skills that teachers might not really realize that literacy is impacting. Sure. Literacy can play kind of two different roles when it comes to any of the content areas or subject matters. You know, one is it it can just be a tool for learning, you know, the you know, I assign this chapter, I want the kids to read it. It has a whole bunch of facts about whatever, and that's what they're supposed to follow. And, uh, you know, if, if, if it's true that writing about that after they read it is going to increase how much they walk away with, and I'm interested, and I'll do that. So that's one kind of conception of it, that it's just a learning tool. It's it's a different way of, of uh, it allows you to vary your activities so that, oh, we watched a video, and they read an article about it, and we, you know, we had a discussion and see... My class is a little different every day, so the kids like it, and and I get the information across. And so it's just you know it's just one more way of presenting information, and 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 that's not a bad thing. That that's okay. But what research that uh, my wife and I have done, and, and a number of other scholars around the world have done, uh, is is looking at what I think is much more interesting is 
you know, historians read different things than mathematicians do. Mathematicians read differently than scientists do. They approach the information differently. They look at it in a different way. Uh, and, and, you know, literary people are very, very different in, in that. And so what the research has been doing and what the, the standards are, are trying to do in almost all states now uh, is how do you read like a historian if, if you're in a social studies class? What would you do differently? Uh, and, and so for one example is uh, you're going to read everything, whether it's a field you know about, uh, you're going to read everything pretty critically. You're never going to trust, you know, who's on the other <laughs> side of that X. Uh, mm-hmm. so that's a stance that uh, in other fields they don't necessarily take. That you know, you, you know, we have that in uh, uh, literature, you know, where you have uh, narrators you can't trust and so on, and, and you you know you learn to identify that kind of thing. But this, the, the historian treats every text like that. Everything has got a human perspective, and I have to keep my eyes open for that. Historians very rarely on anything that they really want to know about will read a single text. Mm-hmm. They're always going to be looking for different points of view, different perspectives. Even if it's, you know, gee, this author wrote this piece right after this event happened. And then 10 years later, they wrote another piece. I want to compare those two pieces to mm-hmm. see how their views changed on that. Uh, look what they were claiming eventually. They didn't say that at the time. I wonder if they just made that up or if that was, you know, so they do that. You don't see so much of that in a science reader. Uh, and I'm not saying they're not critical readers, but what we found when we studied chemists is they're critical when they read um, things that they have high knowledge about. And they go in looking for what's wrong. When they're reading about other things, they tend to go in as more of a student. I just mm-hmm. want to understand this. I'm just trying to comprehend this and get as much of the facts and you know the structure of what they're telling me. And so they they read in those ways. A uh, science uh, text, for example, you might notice, unlike a novel or a short story or a poem, typically any kind of science text will have sort of three kinds of things going on. They've got a narrative. There's all the, you know, this expository text that's telling what, what happened and what putting things into language. There are often a bunch of numbers. There's some kind of mathematical version of it. And they're often graphics. Yeah. Uh, and, and you look at that and you go, what's that all about? Well, what scientists will tell you is, unlike mathematicians and literature people, they're writing about real life stuff. And language doesn't necessarily f- capture that. And so, since you're really describing something real, you don't have to shape it to your imagination. You don't have to shape it to, to your theory. You, what, what happens is language just won't describe this. So, can I do it graphically? Can I do it mathematically? If I can describe it in three different ways, each of these is going to capture some piece of it. They're, they're all meant to describe the same thing, but they're going to describe it in a slightly different way that will actually help you to see it. Uh, that language wouldn't give you. And so when you read as a scientist, you might read a sentence or two, and then you look at the graphic, and then you go down and look at the formula to see how the formula matches up. It's, it's, this, it, it's not a, I start with the first word and I end up with the last. It's, I work through this text, moving among these three different interpretations of the information. Well, that's not how a historian reads. That's not how, a, and so Learning uh, how people actually read in these different fields, what strategies they use, what their purposes are, and then actually teaching kids not so much these are structural things you do, but this is what the experts, this is what grown-ups are doing. This is what the, you know, if you want to play in this ballpark, this is how they get to be as good at what they're doing as they So you're going to have to learn to read this graphic, or you're going to have to learn to match this formula with, with uh, uh, this language, or you won't be able to do it. And we can show you how to do that. And for teenagers, wow, uh, they're much more interested in how would I be like this particular group or join that group or you know, be like this guy who I really admire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I've spent a lot of time studying is how do different people read and write? And so, for example, I used to teach a class in this, and one of the assignments was that if you were in my class, you'd have to go out and study a workplace and see how they read and write. Now, I wouldn't allow you to look at a teacher or a principal, but you can look at any other <laughs> <laughs> Any other field. Any it other field. Be, it could be something. And it, 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 it could be 
gee, I went and, and, you know, hung out at McDonald's and, you know, watched what the line chefs have to read and and see what that looks like. Or I'll go the other end. I'm going to look at doctors or lawyers. And I've had people, literally uh, young women driving around in the back of police cars, you know, all night seeing, you know, how cops use literacy or uh, uh, stand up comedians. You know, how Uh, do you stand up comedian? What do they do with reading and writing? Do you know? (laughs) I have some idea. <laughs> I can guess. <laughs> I'm to their notebooks. Uh, uh-huh. If you want to do that kind of work, you better carry a notebook every place you go, and and you know you won't be as social as you used to be because every time anything strikes you interesting or funny, you got to stop and write it down or you'll miss it. <laughs> and you know that's how you build your routines and so on. <laughs> so you know. Teaching kids not just this is what you do, but this is how a chemist does it. This is how a literary critic does it. This is how a mathematician would handle it. This is what a scientist engages in. Uh, you could do that too. You could be in that club. Uh, I think uh, students are interested in socially connecting, uh, not just with each other. We, you know, we make a big deal out of the peer connections, but they're fascinated by what it is that adults do. They're interested in becoming. And so if it's not just, oh, it's a school thing, we just have to do this, it's a page we fill out. Oh, no, this isn't just a page you fill out. This is people in this field. This is, Let me show you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm well, very- Well, it just makes it that. relevant. I love yeah. that, right? Anchoring it in the real world, which I, you know, so strange. There's just like this disconnect for so many kids about this happens in a classroom, but they don't see the the bridge to what's happening in the real world and asking them to go out and observe anybody and the way they read in their workplace. I mean, I could see that as being kind of fascinating and a little eye-opening. Absolutely. And and you, you, you see a lot of high school kids, you know, a kid might be reading at a third grade level and he thinks he's going to be a physician. They, right. they, you know, they have no idea what, what's expected, what they would have to do. Uh, for some kids, knowing that changes everything for, you know, in terms of, wow, now I'm going to have to work differently than I thought. I was thought I was doing fine. But mm-hmm. now I can see I'm falling short. I'm going to really go after this. And other kids maybe say, wow, that doesn't look possible. What could I do? And it gets them looking at what is it these grownups are doing? Mm-hmm. You know, we tend yeah. to give names of jobs, engineer, but what does an engineer actually do? Yeah, and 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 getting real specific, what do they read? What do they write? Uh, you know, is that really what you'd want to do with your time? And for a lot of kids, the answer would be yes, but they don't have any idea, so they can't prepare themselves. They can't use what we're giving them. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I would love to see more, like opportunities for kids to observe different professions just generally, like some of the career technical education pathways are so fascinating just because I think there's a lot of opacity, like you're saying, around different careers. Like when I was growing up, I just assumed I would be uh, an attorney because that's what my mom did. So I went all the way almost through UCLA with getting an English degree, thinking I'm going to be an attorney and then spent time in her office working kind of for her basically. And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this. (laughs) But I had no idea until I was in it and talk about a very unique kind of career in terms of what you're reading, the volume of reading, what you're writing. It's just really, it's a fascinating point that you're making. My, My oldest daughter is an attorney but hated uh, legal writing. Mm. Just, oh, you know, her sense of what quality writing is and what an attorney's sense is are really different. Mm-hmm. And she really, in fact, she didn't practice for several years because of that. She was just so turned off by that writing like that. Right. Uh, oh, that's interesting. It felt like such a compromise. Uh, now she's doing it and it's fine. I don't know how she figured out that she could do both of those things right she's like made it work for her and now she's she's good (laughs) exactly (laughs) so obviously this podcast is called the balance and i'm curious since you have so much experience in education I wanted to talk with you a little bit about the imbalances you see i know in our pre-podcast planning document you mentioned that you have this concern that teachers always need to be on and they like never get time for themselves. So what do you think teachers who tend to be on all of the time should or would be wise to consider? Like what's the danger of always being on? What gets neglected when teachers don't take that time for themselves? Yeah, you know, 
teachers, the, the work itself is hard. And then when you think of the age of teachers and their personal lives, uh, I just was looking at some statistics about, you know, the percentage of folks in the profession who are women. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, I think, even higher. Is it higher now than it's been for many years? And so there's been a, a an increasing shift towards, you know, even more women than when I went into the field. Uh, wow, I didn't realize that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, whoever I was reading was saying uh, since the uh, um, COVID uh, crisis, uh, a ton of men have withdrawn from the profession. And so it's really shifted the balance even worse than it was, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I don't think is good. But but when I look at the responsibilities that women take in the home for the kids and often for the their own parents who are starting to you know have trouble and so on, you think about it, the teacher gets up in the morning, goes off to school to deal with you know, all the kids all day. And, you know, certainly one of the biggest complaints, uh, especially of elementary teachers is, you know, I need a bathroom break. I need to be able to go to the bathroom and I've got these kids and, you know, if you have 30 <laughs> kids sitting there, you can't just leave. And, uh, you know, so they're, they're doing that all day long and maybe their meetings after school and then they go home and cook dinner and, get, you know, do the stuff to get the kids. And then the husband wants, it's, oh my goodness. Uh, you know, I just feel like they... What, what do they lose? They lose themselves. They lose any sense of uh, of, uh, of being uh, protected in, in any way. Uh, and so, one of the ways I you know find out about this is when we talk about things like in the, that kind of a class. Why do we read? And for so many teachers, the reason that they read maybe a few minutes at the end of the day is really just to be left alone. <laughs> they don't care what they're reading. <laughs> you know, you know agents in their case isn't, oh, I want to pick, you know, some challenging, wonderful, not, I don't care what it is. It can be a piece, of, in fact, it might be better if it's a piece of junk that I don't care about because mm-hmm. I just want to shut out the world for a few minutes uh, to, you know, recenter. Uh, and I, I think that uh, you don't hear, at least I've never heard men talk about it that way, but I think a lot of women... It's just on all the time. Yeah. And I think that's just something in, in the teaching profession because the way our days are structured and the, the responsibility for kids and all the legal stuff about being there and not being able to just, you know, in any other job, I'm going to stop for a few minutes, Harry, and go use the bathroom and, and you know, or I have to get this call from my, my daughter or what. You can do things like that, but you can't do most of that when you're teaching. And so it, it, it is a, an occupational hazard. And I, I think teachers need to, uh, as well as they think they're doing it, I think they'd be smart to find ways of stealing some minutes uh, along the way um, that I, I think a lot of times they don't do. Uh, they're not as self-protective as I think they need to be. Yeah, no, I, everything you're saying, I'm like having flashbacks because I remember as a teacher to when I had two small kids, getting them packed up in the morning, taking them to school. So we're in the car together. Then I'm at the high school. I'm inundated with students. Often they're in my room, even during the lunch and the break and after school. And then I'd get my stuff done, get my kids, come home, do that whole song and dance that you're talking about. And I just remembered having days where I was like, I wish every everyone would just leave me alone. <laughs> like I need, I need a timeout. I need like 10 minutes to myself. Um, I think actually exercise became like, well, I've got to go on my walk or I've got to go to the gym. And as much as I really love being physically active, it was just kind of like, I need a break from all of you, all the people who are constantly like around me. I just need to put a little distance once in a while. And I think it's hard not to feel guilty as a parent, as a teacher when you when you do that. But I agree. It's like if you're not taking care of yourself and having some of those moments where you're filling your own cup and just nurturing your own needs, it's easy. It, it was in those moments when I didn't do those things where I definitely wasn't the parent I wanted to be. I was short and clipped and frustrated. I wasn't the teacher I wanted to be. And so I think it's a real concern for sure. Yeah. I, you know, I, I can remember not when I was a teacher, but when I was a, a professor, uh, people would tell me, colleagues would tell me, they could tell what kind of a day I was having if my de- door was open or closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> if I was feeling just inundated, the door would close. I needed that time to myself. And it might be just a few minutes of, of reading or just 
you know, I, I actually I lay out on a table <laughs> just yeah. for a few minutes, um, you know, just to, you know, get that time back. Uh, and I also, the other thing I always think of when I hear a story like what you were just describing, uh, how the airlines tell us, you know, when you're sitting on an yeah. airline and they're describing what's going to happen if oxygen is lost and the, the masks are going to fall down, they always tell you, put on your mask first before helping anybody else. Because, you know, imagine that mother or father with a couple of kids and your first concern, of course, let's get their mask on. And you maybe get one of mine and then you pass out. And what's Mm -hmm. happening, if you put yours on first, you can operate. And so I think a teacher needs to, whether it's grabbing some time for exercise or meditation or prayer or reading uh, or, you know, or just, you know, Climbing into a dark closet for people to <laughs> shut out the world, uh, they really ought to do. Uh, and and uh, if they do, I think they'll find themselves stronger and able to do all those things and manage those without cracking up. Yeah. So I always end the show and you're, I think I'm kind of, I I have a sense of what direction you're going to take this, but I always end the show by inviting my guests to kind of share a tip, a strategy, something they found useful in striving for attempting to maintain balance in their own lives. So for you, what do you feel like has worked for you personally or professionally to help you kind of strive for balance? Um, You know, I, I, you know, I described earlier how I handle uh, literacy training and so on, that we start with a framework. And I kind of do the same thing when it comes to protecting myself. There are a handful of things that I think are absolutely crucial to feeling good and to feeling in control and all of that. And I do a, a kind of a quick self-assessment, trying to figure out where am I falling down? Where am I getting what I need? And so, you know, just a, a, a handful of things, and you, people could break this any number of ways that they want to, but, I, you know, I always start, the first one is health and fitness and, you know, do I, do I feel good? Do I look good? Do I, you know, am mm-hmm. I, uh, do I feel safe and in shape and that kind of stuff? And, and you know, sometimes you're not. Uh, sometimes it's, I need more exercise or, oh God, I haven't been to the dentist now. And, you know, I was supposed to go and I cancel, you know, I've got to get a dentist appointment, that kind of thing, right? Need my haircut. It looks like hell. Uh, you know, what do people think? <laughs> um, whatever it is, you know, so that's, that's one piece. A, a, a second piece is social relations, marriage, family, friends. Where am I on that stuff? Is it, oh, you know, my spouse and I are fighting about, you know, maybe we should go out to dinner and just have a, a, some time. I'm going to have to get a babysitter. Uh, gee, I'm really worried about my youngest child. She's not doing as well at school as I'd hoped. I, I, I don't know if that teacher is really paying attention. I want to make an appointment with it. Those kinds of things can knock you off your mm-hmm. work. Is work going the way it should be? You know, what mm-hmm. am I doing what I want to do there? Am I feeling confident? Am I feeling uh, another one is finances and stuff? <laughs> you know, my heart <laughs> breaking down. I've got to get that fixed. Uh, uh, man, you know, we're never going to get that house unless we start saving some money. I, you know, I've got to pay myself first. I've got to start doing some of that kind of thing. And then certainly the one that I, we were just focused on is, and I don't know what to call this one, uh, spirituality or inspiration or, or uh, aesthetics or learning. For me, it's, it may be more of a learning thing than anything, but it's about that inner self. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gain a huge amount of balance from learning new things. And so whether that's I'm going to read something very different or I'm going to take a class or, you know, whatever. But for other people, it's, you know, I went, to, I, I need to see something beautiful. I'm going to go for a drive someplace. I'm going to uh, go, the other day we went and picked apples. I'm going to go, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to the art museum and look at beautiful paintings. Um, uh, for somebody else, it's, I'm going to go to church. I need to pray. I need to, you know, do that. Or I meditate. Maybe, you know, I'll, you, you're going to want to meditate. But if you go through that list of those, you know, health, spirituality, social relations, work, financial stuff, uh, which of those are bugging you right now? Which ones of those don't feel good? And then take some action in whichever one is, is bugging you right now. And, and what I find is when I do that, the whole thing gets better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's really the particular thing I'm fixing as much as I'm in control again. I know where I am. I know who I am. And I'm, I, I you know, I, I, 
it isn't just the world that gets to operate on me. I get to operate on me and I get to operate on the world. Mm. And I think that's important. So that's kind of where I go. I love that. I, cause I, I know for myself being a little bit of a, it's hard for me not to feel in control of things. And so that idea of being able to do almost like a self-assessment of these big things in your life and identify what's not working or what's causing you to like feel a little out of balance. And then that idea of taking action and being that agent and having some control over it. I can see that for myself. This is really great advice. (laughs) Like I can (laughs) see myself doing this. So thank you. And just thank you for making the time to chat with me. It was so much fun to to just get to kind of pick your brain and, and connect. Good to get to know you a bit better, Catelyn. Enjoy. Thank you. few takeaways from this conversation with Dr. Shanahan. I think the first is really this acknowledgement that we have to be really intentional about the time we spend on specific tasks. As teachers, we all gravitate to certain kinds of strategies, certain areas of our curriculum that we really love and enjoy, but really striving to make sure we're providing a balanced experience for students, knowing that they're really not going to be able to focus for huge chunks of time on a single activity like vocabulary development and how are we really shifting between different learning activities in a classroom to give students a much more comprehensive and complete experience, really helping them to develop lots of skills in in kind of conjunction or concert with each other. I also really appreciate this conversation we had at the end about the dangers of always being on. And I think for me, it just resonates really personally because as a mother, as a professional, I struggle with this all the time jumping from my professional life and all of the things that I'm responsible for right into mom mode and sometimes never having real time to myself. And if I don't take care of myself, I know I don't show up as good of a mother as I want to be. I'm not the focused professional or the effective patient professional I want to be. And so really being intentional about that as well, just carving out those moments where we're taking care of ourselves so that we can show up and be the best versions of ourselves that we want to be for those people in our lives that we care about, that we're working with professionally or that we're interacting with in our home environments. StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include an engaging, supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studiesync.com for more information or follow the link in the show notes.